Welcome to the Thursday Arts Preview, where the P is parenthetical. I'm your host, E.J. Ionelli. The 33 Artists Market is coming back for its second year, and it's now 33 times 2. In our second and final segment of this episode, we'll chat with the event's founder and organizer, Gwen Pavanka, about why the event is doubling this year. Before that, we're going to talk with the local poet Maya Jewel Zeller about her brand new collection of work titled Outtakes Slash Glove Box. It was recently selected for the New American Poetry Prize, and following its official launch yesterday, there's a launch party in Spokane tonight, that's November 2nd, at Spark Central. The theme of the evening is Spinning Out, Motherhood, Myths, and Madness. Maya will be joined there by author Alexandra Teague, who's celebrating the publication of her own memoir titled Spinning Teacups. Special guests Kate Lebo and Laura Reed will be there as well to emcee the event. All this week, Maya has been reading for Spokane Public Radio's daily Poetry Moments segment, including some selections from Outtakes slash Glovebox. When she came in to read, we sat down and discussed her new collection, which blends epigrams, surreal collages, and unconventionally formatted poems into a work that's both fragmented and unified. Normally, I like to begin with a question, but I'm going to begin, I think, more with, uh, with a statement, and then we can maybe discuss. But this is difficult poetry. And <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and I, I, I don't mean that in the pejorative sense. Yeah. Um, and it's not just because the subject matter is difficult, but because even now I am sensing themes and I am sensing recurring motifs and I'm trying to figure out how it all pieces together. I know there's a link in there. Yeah. We live in a really difficult world, and when we make art, we're rendering that difficult world into something that might be beautiful or might be grotesquely beautiful that others can perceive. And I think making poetry is making art with words, and so people's perceptions of it and their kind of visceral feelings and reactions should be the primary thing that we pay attention to before we start paying attention to sense-making. So in that realm, yeah, it's difficult. Life is really hard in, you know, the 2010s and 2020s. We're living in late capitalism um, in a time of systems that fracture and fragment, and we're so used to narrative. And when I was writing this book, which was actually about a decade ago, I was feeling extremely fractured and fragmented. I felt like the reproductive system was on a microscope. I felt like I was living in a body uh, post-childbirth of two babies that had been uh, turned into its parts. I felt like I was a body in a system that didn't see me as a person. And so the poems are really kind of carrying all of those difficulties. And I would agree it's difficult. And I think we need to take on things that are sometimes beyond our narrative comprehension. And so that's part of what I was trying to do in making the art of this book. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that and that fracture and that fragmentation, because that is my initial perception despite seeing these interlinkages, because this is conveyed not just in the poetry itself, but just in the way that the book is presented. And you have, again, not just poems, but there are these quotes that are taken from other poets and other writers. There's surreal imagery. And 
when I talk about difficult, uh, some of this imagery is difficult. There's an eviscerated baby yeah. Um, yeah. With, uh, with flowers coming out of their head. So <laughs> I'd like to maybe talk about the artist who mm-hmm. provided you with those and the almost interdisciplinary nature of the collection as a way of rendering that fracture. Yeah, thanks for noticing so closely. So the art was actually made after I wrote the poems. So I um, wrote this book, which I kind of think of as a wunderkammer as, or as a cabinet of curiosities. I think of it as wandering through the rooms of the self. And I'll come back to the baby. But the book opens with a woman who is going back into the girlhood of herself, headed home to the foothills of the Willapa Hills where she's going cow tipping and where she's going back to an old mud hole. And then we see that girl kind of go into the bushes where there's a junked car and open the glove box and out spills all this dirt, right? Kind of spilling the dirt. And a reel of film comes out and you see that reel of film contains all of these um, images and the images create a collage documentary of her life. So you see her history first. And that first section with the film and the outtakes from the making contain all of those images that are fractured and the compounds that are then split in half and the images of, as you said, babies kind of erupting into flowers, which is also a version of the self. And so then the book moves from there into kind of the various versions of that speaker's past. And we come to understand that this woman who lives in the inland Northwest, far from those junked cars on the coast, it has become a mother. And this carries her back into her past. And so we kind of move between present and past, present and past, and these various selves. And when the artist, designer, Angelo Minaj, read the book, he picked up on those fractures. And I like that you mentioned surrealism, EJ, because the surrealism of the book allows us to inhabit the cognitive dissonance that so many of us feel when we become parents. I think anyone with a uterus in the United States where we don't have parental leave, where we don't have policies to protect us, where we don't have um, systems that value us as people, especially after we have children, <laughs> we, we're lucky that things like a surrealist past in art and literature exist, and we can step into those ways of understanding or ways of knowing. So the artist who read the book saw some of the same things that Eduardo Corral, who chose the collection, or Diane Seuss, who um, endorsed it, saw. Uh, Diane Seuss called it crenellated, and she said there were compound words snapped like bones in two. And I felt very, very seen by that, as by the artist uh, when he made those those images. And the images that you called interdisciplinary, I love that energy. I love it when someone else reads a work, perceives it, puts their own lensing or understanding on it. So having Angelo create collages for the cover and for the interior. The baby actually didn't end up in the book. I had that cut from the final version because I didn't want to make a spectacle out of an experience that I think is extremely personal and private for me. So childbirth and carrying children and the fears and inherent wounds that come with the reproductive system and everything that happens with that before and after having children becoming medicalized and made into science uh, can feel really kind of taken away. So the, the book tries to carry it in a way that's tender. And so there's a section where the speaker is a mermaid and there's a section of poems in which she has been placed into an institution because she's trying to tell people she's a mermaid and they don't believe her. So it's also a book about women not being believed. So I had to come up with the most fantastical way that a woman wouldn't be believed, which is a woman saying, hey, I'm a fish and a woman, um, which is what I felt like after I gave birth. 
So there's that, and then there's a reclamation through spells and magic, and there's that section of spells to reclaim and to, to kind of like gather those ingredients back into a cauldron. And that's the part where you talked about there are a lot of quotes and a lot of uh, references back to maternal lineage, uh, both literary maternal lineage and also the self's maternal lineage. Uh, I reference also, um, you know, historic literary men like Henry David Thoreau or people like Terry Sawchuck, who was a, you know, a goalie and his face is just completely Frankensteined by having been hit with pucks and restitched together so many times, which is what the body feels like um, sometimes after childbirth or trying to exist in systems that make a spectacle of the body's wounds. And then the book ends on another section of outtakes, which is kind of what's picked up off the cutting room floor when you make a documentary. So that was a, a long answer to your question, but that's kind of what the book And it does. raised so many additional points that I wanted to make out. And since one of the last references you made was to Terry Sawchuck, and <laughs> again, this ties back into my, my statement or my perception of difficult poetry, because his poem or the poem about him or that invokes mm-hmm. his name is one that you have to turn in landscape mode. Yeah to read. And so we have this this form being informed by content and this uh, the way the reader engages it. And so it's poetry that asks more of the reader than simply hold this in your hand and read these words. Yeah. So in this section of the book, there's a, a few spells. The the mermaid isn't being believed, and so she turns to witch, witchery, right, and starts casting spells. And in this section where this, this spell is spell for the face of Terry Sawchuck, 1966, and for Medusa Nebula. So the book turns, as you said, landscape. You have to actually tilt the book. And that was a stylistic decision that we made in design. So the size of the book is actually quite small. It's that that five by eight size that you don't get often anymore because we're making books bigger and bigger to accommodate the poetics of kind of wild lines and um, poems that are kind of blurring genre hybridity. Uh, But this poem in its spell shape had these really long lines on the page, which in Microsoft Word's typical eight and a half by 11 worked fine. But when we went to put it into the book form, they were squished. And so they kept trying to wrap. And the publisher and the designer were kind of throwing their hands up and saying, what do we do with this? And I said, I have always dreamed of people having to turn a book sideways at one section to engage, as you say, kind of the the tangible and asking the body to engage. And so by asking the reader to inhabit a kind of embodied poetics of participating with the poem, everything's tilted suddenly. And so your body inhabits this space of, oh, something's different here, something's sideways. And then you launch into the spells. So you're kind of primed for the magic by that shifting of the body. And I really lucked out that I got a publisher and a designer that were stoked about that. They were like, yeah, let's turn it landscape. And I said, oh, could we also have grayscale between the sections? And they were just willing to do a lot of these visual interdisciplinary elements that I so value when artists collaborate with one another. And book design is one of those elements. I think anyone out there who's designing books or making books by hand has probably participated in how do I, what do I do with the paper? What do I do with the binding? What do I do with turning the book? Can I involve visuals, et cetera, et cetera. And so this book has that like tangible visual um, element. And I hope it adds to the medicine of the poem too, that there's a little bit of whimsy. There's a little bit of like tilting sideways. And I hope it gives some levity to the gravity of the subjects. And one of the poems you read this week was by Laura Reed from her collection, but she is also Jane. And when Laura was in here, we talked about her poems and a theme that emerged from that work was her, where she is now, 
being in dialogue with her past selves, being in dialogue with her former selves. And that is something that really comes through. I mean, you even made reference to it earlier. Was that something that you were trying to capture in this collection, you as a mother now being in dialogue with your past selves? Absolutely. Thanks for mentioning Laura Reed, too. She's one of my favorite poets and one of my favorite people, and we're very good friends. So we're in dialogue with each other a lot as well and always talking about kind of the fracture of the selves. And um, you're probably familiar with the late Joan Didion saying we need to keep on nodding terms with ourselves. It's something that nonfiction writers say all the time. You know, you're writing from you know, that Vivian Gornick, the situation, the story. Here I am in this place, in this studio at this time, but I'm talking to myself five years ago or I'm talking to myself 10 years ago. And I've always been interested in those layers of selves um, because I'm, I was a person who grew up moving a lot. So I went to, four, I think, nine schools and moved 14 times and three different high schools. And so myself, even when I was on a timeline of the same academic year, sometimes I found myself in two schools or two places. So I had these, this incredible, I'll spin it in a, in a good way, incredible opportunity to reinvent myself every time I moved. So I would go from, oh, I'm, I'm going to do goth. Um, now I'm going to be preppy. And it was all, you know, goodwill clothes that I kind of like, you know, scavenged. Uh, but I got a chance to reinvent myself. And I think that reinvention of selves is really just kind of turning the crystal ball of the self, right? And saying, oh, what's the other facet? What's the other facet? So I think a lot of poets do this. A lot of poets are interested in the current self, the past self, the future self, the sideways self, the multiple selves, the, you know, Whitmanic, I contain multitudes. And my work is definitely trying to do that. Um, it is It is absolutely intentional. And this book in particular is interesting because I wrote most of it a decade ago and then revised it after I wrote my next book. So I wrote my next book, went back and revised it and added the spells. And so the spells were like a way of going back and recasting. And even the person who wrote the book was not the same as the person who revised the book. And it's interesting that you talk about the very long genesis of this entire collection because Despite the fragmentation, and I don't want to indulge in too much psychoanalysis, but when you talk about moving around a lot and reinventing yourself, I think, oh, that maybe that fragmentation of self oh, yeah, becomes evident. It. Yeah, it becomes <laughs> evident in this. But there's also this continuity, and there's almost like this word association game where I will see a theme or a motif or something emerge in one poem, and then that gets picked up in the next poem. And then there's a theme that arises or bubbles up in that, and that gets picked up in the next poem. So it seems to me, like, again, despite the fragmentation, that there's this continuity as if they were all written in succession. So I, I think you might be my ideal reader because you're just getting everything and maybe maybe you have a whole thing of reviews that you're writing of books in the Inland Northwest. But I, there, So there's the imagistic echo and there's the sonic echo, right? And those things are working in tandem with each other, I hope, in this collection. And yeah, kind of picking up and threading through. So since you mentioned Laura, I'm going to talk about her again. Laura and I often talk about making a collection and how for Laura, it's really clear. She has kind of one color of thread that's the primary thread going through. And I'm one of those people with the embroidery mess where you're not even seeing the front. You kind of flip it over and you just see all the tangled threads in the back. And I'm like, there are seven different colors of thread here. They clash with each other. And I am, I'm doing the work on the back. And you're going to see that, that hot mess of threads. And I'm hoping that when you turn it over, you see that there's some connection and there's a pattern. Um, and mine's less of 
a narrative shape and more of maybe cubism or, you know, the impressionist story, the cubist story. It's not the narrative story, but it's uh, that narrative story is in there. And if you find the narrative thread, you're like, oh, there's the blue narrative thread. It's going through all the poems and stitching together these images. And then here's the weird sonic thread and here's the thematic one. And so all those different colors are definitely in there. And um, yeah, that's intentional. And I'm glad that you note that. And since you have given me a lovely seg there, I will tie into my last question, which is these very visual motifs that keep emerging. And I was kind of compiling a list and then, again, trying to see how they all interconnected. There's the horse, Mm -hmm. the female reproductive system, and just corporeality. There's the automobile, insects, uh, fruit. And then, of course, in the end, we get into these more surreal Im- images of the mermaid. And then there was one that didn't quite fit into the, the very obvious <laughs> visual element, but that is the, the state of raw physical passion. And this appears throughout the book and also uh, in the form of some four-letter words that we can't quite get into. <laughs> but um, again, I'm assuming that you were very much aware either in the creative process or in the revision process of maybe tying some of these motifs through and maybe even enhancing them? Yeah. I think a lot of us operate under these kind of binary systems. Um, In the case of this book, you know, the whore Madonna complex. And I think a lot about what the theorist Jean Kilborn said about how we're desperate to believe we're in control of what happens to us. And we're obviously not totally in control, but I think that this book and its various approaches and retryings and retellings and kind of begging to be believed over and over and over again is my way or my speaker's way of getting at what's between those binaries. So there's the whore and there's the Madonna and the Madonna can be a mother. And on the other side of that, there's kind of the nothing. And so kind of diving into the ways that Frankly, if I'm being very personal, um, I did not have support. I did not have family support, professional support, systemic support when I was approaching kind of my early um, professional career and having babies. I think that those things were just so disconcerting that this book was one of the results of trying to grapple with not having control and and the disbelief that we just aren't in charge of our own bodies, our own systems, our own lives, and kind of fighting to, to reclaim that control and to push back against complexes that would put us into this identity or this identity and saying that there's this big gray area. Well, Maya, I just want to thank you so much for coming in and not just talking about this work, but also reading for us this week during Poetry Moment. Thank you so much for having me. That was the poet Maya Jewel Zeller discussing her new collection, Outtakes, Love Box. The launch party for that takes place this evening, that's November 2nd, at Spark Central in Spokane. For more information on that event, which also features writers Alexandra Teague, Kate Lebo, and Laura Reed, you can visit spark-central.org and look for their events tab. If you'd like to hear Maya reading select poems from Outtakes, Love Box, plus the work of other poets, head to our website at spokanepublicradio.org and click on the Poetry Moment tab. You can also listen or subscribe to Poetry Moment on all major podcast platforms like Spotify and Google and Apple Podcasts. Coming up this weekend, the 33 Artists Market is celebrating its one-year anniversary. And in that year, it's grown. What began as a one-time showcase at The Hive has now become a two-day market that takes place at both The Hive 
and the Wonder Building, effectively doubling the number of artists that it features. Ahead of this year's autumn event, I spoke with the founder of 33 Artists Market, Gwen Pavanka, about why 33 is now more like 66. And to better appreciate that growth, we started by talking about how 33 Artists Market got its start last year at The Hive. I was the artist in resident in November of 2022. And uh, with the free amenities, you are supposed to do some kind of community outreach, whether that be a class or uh, an artist talk. And uh, one of my outreach programs was to do this pop-up art market. And it essentially started out as an invitation only. So it was, we started with three artists and then those artists invited artists. And then we did it until we got to 33 artists. So it was just kind of like a, at the time I thought, a one-time show. But then people were like, we love this wow, it's so organized. We need more of this in Spokane. So then 2023 happened and I was like, okay, I guess we're doing this three times a year just to kind of go into the motif of 33, three times a year. And so we had a show in March, a show in July, and now um, two shows in November because why not? (laughs) And so other than getting bigger, what else is different? Yeah, so we are still trying to stay within the 33 artist max level. And the reason being that is because we want an intimate experience. Uh, That's what a lot of customers and clientele have said is that they really enjoy that they come into the space and feel like they get the chance to uh, speak to the artist about their craft, really get that one-on-one time with them, um, and just, again, just really be able to support the local arts community. So this year, in order to open up more opportunities but still preserve that intimacy, it now goes over two days. Yeah, uh, so we grew over the last year and decided to do two shows this uh, November as a way to just bring more arts, uh, more artists under one name. Um, And really the doubling was because I booked the Hive after having the show at the Hive, the first show. And then we actually outgrew that space. So I asked the Wonder Building if they would do a show as well. But yeah, we just had so much success over the last year, whether that be just having a ton of applications for our events, anywhere from like 80, we had 115. And I'm thinking I can only put 33 artists into this market. That seems really unfair. So that's why we kind of chose to do two markets this uh, November. And this kind of pays homage to the whole history of this because you have one day, which is the first day at the Hive, and then you have another day at the Wonder Building. So it pays tribute to not only its origins, but where it's grown. Yeah, and and that's like the best part of it because the show at the Hive has more um, blending established artists with emerging artists. And then the show at the Wonder Building is like the all-stars. Like when you think of like Spokane artists or like the veterans of 33 Artist Market, this is that show. Like you're going to go there and be like kind of just blown away just by the talent that is provided in that show. Both are super unique. The the Hive is we are partnering with the Spokane um, Public Library and it's actually um, highlighting the past present and future Hive artists, so artist residencies, um, and then also newer artists, new to showing artists, so emerging artists. And then you have, you know, your blend of 
established artist like Megan Perkins, who does beautiful watercolor, you know, she also was an artist in resident at the Hive as well. So. And we have also featured her on Thursday. Yeah, Arts we Preview. love her. Yeah, we so, love her. Yeah. <laughs> She's great. And, um, you know, if we could talk about some of these emerging artists. Yeah. So some of those emerging artists are like Katie and Ken Ceramics. Uh, I love her. Um, and then we have Jade and Joy Tattoo, which I recently got a tattoo from her. And I was like, you're pen work is amazing like it might not be like a gallery specific piece but I'm trying to bring gallery quality work to a market setting so I was like I think you should apply um and then we have uh Silver Twilight Studios uh she is a silversmith in Medical Lake we have uh Heather Taylor Art she's a new abstract artist this will be her first market first show and that's really cool that you not only have emerging artists but like this is the emergent of the emerging right. they're, so they're showing for the first time their first time first show and like 33 artists likes to come alongside those artists so it's like if they have questions about how to get a business license or like what lighting or booth display or whatever it may be like you know I've been in the market scene for about 12 years but our other artists that are established kind of come alongside them as well so it's it's not just like you come and you show and figure it out it's like we want to foster that relationship and help you build and help you grow and it's not just me it's a bunch of artists that have been showing with 33 artists market for a while that just want it to be like a kind community where we're uplifting each other and then the other part of that is the established artists or the big names. And so I see, for example, you've got Carly Fairbanks, you've got uh, Reynaldo Gil Sambrano, Megan Perkins, um, you know, so many of these recognizable names. Um, who of these established artists is joining 33 artists for the first time? Yeah. Um, so we have Karen Mobley. She actually was supposed to be a part of our first show. And so we're excited to have her for the first time at the Wonder Building. And then Cheryl Metcalf. Um, she is a bronze sculptor from the Coeur d'Alene area. She's also going to be working on a bust of plasticine while she's at the show. So you actually get to see her work and also see her bronze pieces on display. So that's really fun. Yeah, and then of course the timing of this is very fortuitous because it's right before the the holiday season. Yeah, and it is also like the exact same time period we had our first show. So we had it November 5th, 2022. So we're having it November 5th, 2023, but at the Wonder Building. Again, kind of going back to the this is where we're growing to. But yeah, it's the perfect time to just grab a piece of art for your home, a, a special something for a friend or just like a treat yourself moment. Yeah, there's a, something for everyone. It's not just paintings. You know, there's jewelry and someone is doing tufted rugs, like hand tufted rugs. I think that is just really cool. I just think it's neat that it's not just what you think at a traditional like art market. There's a little bit of something for everyone. Excellent. Well, Gwen, thank you so much for coming in once again and then talking about what's new at this year's 33 Artist Market and just what we can expect over these two days. Yeah, just so excited. Can't wait to see everyone. It's going to be a blast. <laughs>
That was Gwen Pavanka, founder of 33 Artists Market and also an artist herself. 33 Artists Market takes place this Saturday and Sunday, that's November 4th and 5th, with the first day at the Hive and the second day at the Wonder Building in Spokane. Some of the artists who will be there include Carly Fairbanks, Ponderosa Ceramics, Karen Mobley, Michelle Schneider, Megan Perkins, Reynaldo Gil Sambrano, Skylar Powell, and Amalia Fish. For more information, visit 33artistsmarket.com. This has been the Thursday Arts Preview, a show that keeps an eye on the past, present, and future of the art scene throughout the Inland Northwest. Each week on Spokane Public Radio, the Thursday Arts Preview offers us an opportunity to revisit fun and interesting interviews, music, and performances you might have missed when they first aired. It's also a space where we look ahead to upcoming events or activities that you won't want to miss. If you'd like to listen again or catch future episodes as soon as they air, subscribe to the Thursday Arts Preview podcast on major platforms like Spotify and Google and Apple Podcasts. For Spokane Public Radio, I'm EJ Ionelli.